And good morning, City Church. Woo! And you. Great to see you. My name's Tom, one of the pastors here. If you've got a Bible, let's turn to Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9. Last term, we looked at Mark chapter 1 to 8. The Gospel of Mark just kind of, you can split right down the middle. It's amazing how the first half, as we were teaching on, is all about the love of Jesus. The series was called Wanted. The simple point that Jesus wants you. He loves you. He, he thinks you're amazing. And then we're going to see in the second half of Mark, this term, Mark 9 to 16, we're going to see something of a new emphasis coming through, which is this, the cost of that love. Last term was all about the love of Christ for you and for the whole world. And from Mark 9 to 16, we see Mark emphasizing again and again the cost of that love. That Jesus Christ, for him to love you, for him to have a relationship with you, cost him everything. And we're going to see that as like the big theme, which is why this uh, sermon, is, this sermon title, this whole series rather, is called Reality Check. Because Jesus again and again is going to be saying, hey, reality check, guys. Listen, for me to love you is not just a nice fluffy thing. It's going to cost me my life. But secondly, reality check time, guys. If you want to follow me, your life itself will have some echo of that pain, some echo of that difficulty and comfort. And so at the end of last term, um, I, I spoke on the fact that to follow Christ means we, we, we deny ourselves. We pick up a cross. We follow him. And the fact is this, is that Jesus says to be a Christian does not in any way mean that you are going to have a life of comfort or pleasure or freedom from suffering. You might be a non-Christian here thinking, oh, great, you're really winning me, Tom, to this Christianity thing. You know, great. What on earth would pull me in, therefore, to becoming or thinking about being a Christian? And this is the bold claim of Jesus Christ, is that he is so confident in the supremacy and glory and wonder of his relationship with you that it trumps and totally overshadows the temporary pain and discomfort and suffering that, as Christians, we do experience in our life. That's the central claim, is that he's so confident that his relationship is so wonderful, so brilliant, that even though it means that actually our lives will have some pain and suffering in it, is that it will infinitely trump the temporary suffering and discomfort and displeasure at times that we face as Christians. It's a little bit like I use the illustration that we've all seen in films where near the end, the hero, sorry, the hero suddenly, or the heroine, suddenly needs to go back into the burning building and rescue the people from inside. And the loved one, the, 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 the lady says, no, no, Jack Bauer, I want to come with you. And he says, no, you can't, it's too dangerous. Your life will be full of discomfort and pain and difficulty if you follow me. And she says, you don't have a choice. I'm coming with you. And so they run in together romantically. And actually, you know, bullets fly and flames and everything. And that's kind of what it's like to follow Christ. Yeah, it's, it's the fact is that she's saying, look, I would rather be with you and have the discomfort and the pain and the suffering that we'll experience if we go off into this adventure together than be without you and a life of comfort. That's the choice. And that's what it's like to be a Christian. Woohoo! So if you're not a Christian, I'm not going to lie to you. It is not about saying your life will suddenly be all great and shiny and everything's going to go right. Quite the opposite. In fact, Jesus says you will experience pain. You will experience suffering. But this is the beautiful thing, is that you do it with Jesus. And his profound promise, as we're going to see, is that the power of his relationship is so great and so stupendously wonderful that it means that it does ultimately overshadow the temporary pain that we suffer this side of eternity. So let's read, therefore, Mark 
chapter 9 and verse 14 with that kind of overarching um, theme in our minds. Verse 14, when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them, scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? Someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down. He foams and grinds his teeth and he becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out and they were not able. And he answered them, oh, faithless generation. How long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy. He fell on the ground and he rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, (laughs) all things are possible for one who believes. And immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit. I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out. And the boy who was like a corpse, so the most of them said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand, lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to him, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. And they went on from there, passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they didn't understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. Jesus, we need you now. We love you. We ask that you will come by your spirit into this very room, into our hearts, and that you will teach us what you want to teach us. You will shape us. You will not allow us to leave this place unchanged. God, I absolutely cry out to you for every man, woman, and child in this room, that we will be transformed by the renewing of our mind. Lord God, by your word and your spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So, the situation is this. Prior to the verses that we've read, we've had the Mount of Transfiguration. Go and look at it, perhaps in your own time. And three of the twelve disciples, Peter, James, and John, have had this amazing experience with Jesus. You've probably heard about it, or or if not read it, where Jesus, is it where you see a glimpse of his actual divinity? It's just breathtaking. But then we see it's like from mountaintop to Monday morning. We now kind of see this like reality check time. Jesus and the three come back. And rather than finding the nine in kind of great power and victory, what do we see? We see a bunch of blundering disciples unable to do that which they should have been able to do. You see, what you see if you go back in your Bibles a few verses or a few chapters to Mark chapter 6 is that Jesus has commissioned the 12. He sent them out. He said, go out, cast out demons, heal the sick, you know, do the stuff of Christian life. And what you read is, is they've done it. They've done it and they've had great success. It's like, woohoo, it's going a-okay, fantastic. Their reputation would have been high at this point. Their profile would have been high. Remind you of anyone? Kind of reminds me a little bit of this church increasingly. 
It seems almost every week there's some article about us in the local paper. It seems like increasingly as more and more people are coming, East Kent is listening and wanting to find out whether the claims that City Church is making, that God is real, God is good, and God can transform your life. It seems like more and more people are coming to the church to say, is this true? And we could be a little bit like these disciples who I think were probably were probably somewhat living off the past. I think they were, they, were, they were confident because of what they'd seen in the past in Mark chapter 6 that God was going to do something. And so when the crowds came, I think, I think what they were actually doing and what their hearts were, they were actually coasting. I think they were coasting. I think so, that's what we see. That's what we're going to unpack here today. And so our first reality check moment in this series is this, is that if you coast as a Christian, you're toast. All right, if you coast, you're toast. It's over, is what this tells us. And we're going to unpack why that's the case. And I think that this nine, these nine disciples, who in many ways were proclaiming, we have the answer to life. And now people were starting to come and go, really? And what do we see is that in the critical moment when everyone's starting to come, is they're lacking the power. And do you know what I feel God is wanting to lovingly warn us about the reality of what we're calling? When we say as Christians we know God and he can heal us and he can change us and he's risen from the dead and there's power right now to heal the sick and to see life transformation, we have to understand that there's a massive responsibility that we have therefore as hopes are raised all across East Kent more than ever before. Well, if you're saying that, let's see it happen. And so I don't want us to have to experience what we've read here today. And I don't think God does. And I think we can learn three principles in here that will help us to avoid coasting, which is what I think was the main issue that we see here. First, number one, be aware of autopilot attitude. I'll explain that in a moment, the autopilot attitude. Number two, laser in on lukewarm love. Laser in on lukewarm warm. And thirdly, very complicated, pray, 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 okay? I think that's what we get from this passage in terms of avoiding this coasting mentality that I think was the key reason that these nine got it wrong. First of all then, be aware of what I've called the autopilot attitude. Okay, we see here in verse um, 18, the dad with the boy who seems to be both medically ill, epileptic, but also seems to be demonized. He says here, so I asked your disciples to cast it out and they were not able And I've underlined that they were not able in my Bible. I've underlined that. Because you know what? He's absolutely right. And actually what's happened in this moment is they've caught a glimpse of their total inability to live the Christian life. Do you know, the Christian life is not difficult. It's impossible. It's actually totally impossible. And and what God has allowed to happen here in a moment is, is for them to suddenly taste their total inability to do the things that God's called them to do. You see, you might be sitting here thinking, what? You're telling me that God calls us to things that we can't do? Yeah, I am. Humanly speaking. Humanly speaking. You see, in Luke chapter 10, Jesus sends out the 70. He sends them out. And this is what he says. He says, guys, you're going out as lambs amongst wolves. Think about that for a moment. Who would win in a scrap? I think the wolves would. We're little lambs, all right? Cute little lambs, but very vulnerable lambs. 
Jesus' definition of Christians going on mission, Christians trying to do the thing God's called us to, is you're a lamb amongst wolves. And he even then says, take no knapsack, take no extra sandals, take no money. He like makes it even more vulnerable. What's he trying to do? He is trying to ram it home. You are dependent. And your sinful fleshly tendency will be to think you can do it without me. That's what you will slip into. And I want you to be profoundly, acutely, uncomfortably aware you can't. You need to stay 24-7 in an ongoing war with that part of our heads and hearts that tries to slip us into an autopilot attitude. Now, I'm no pilot, but I get the idea that when a plane is kind of at 35,000 foot, blue sky, easy peasy, lemon squeezy, that's when they press the autopilot button and it basically just flies. And we can, we can see that here, I think, these guys are just cruising off their reputation and their past previous spiritual experiences. You know, they're just cruising from, you know, well, yeah, you know, two years ago I had a quiet time, so I'll be fine here. And they're just cruising along. And actually, it is deadly. It's absolutely deadly. The Christian life is not like cruising along at 35,000 feet. It's actually more like flying a plane through a mountain range. You do not put a plane on autopilot if you're flying through a mountain range. You are red, alert, focused, focused every minute of the time. Focused in terms of making sure that you are steering that thing and giving it your full attention. Matthew 28, Jesus says, Go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. Let me ask you this question. Is that possible? It is totally impossible aside from God. It's like saying, to make a disciple is like saying, I want you to go out and to make those trees into elephants. All right? It's like to, to make a disciple is, is to co-labor with God in turning someone from being someone who doesn't love God, who isn't about God, who is fundamentally about themselves, into someone whose very life is all about him. That is the greatest miracle that can occur on planet Earth. That's what the Bible tells us. It is totally and breathtakingly impossible. And the moment that they and we slip into autopilot attitude in our lives, then the rot starts to set in. How we view the task that God has given us in terms of our Christian life. I know it sounds weird because you think this sounds a bit depressing. Actually, it's the kindest thing that Jesus can say. It's the kindest thing that we can be reminded of. You see, their weakness was that they were weak in knowing that they were weak. They were weak in knowing that they were weak. They effectively had slipped into a presumption, into a kind of pride. I think in their thinking, they were viewing, this, this thing will be fine, we can do it. We can, just, we can just blag it, basically. They were blagging the Christian life, and it came around and bit them. And I think, I don't know whether it's just me, I find that very challenging. Because I think this is a warning check. This is a reality moment for us as a church and you individually, if you would say that you're someone who follows Jesus. You see, in the Old Testament, you see from start to finish, it's this, this kind of idea. The whole point that God chooses weak men and weak women, why? Is so they never forget their dependence on God. From Moses, the man who was like the guy in class who would have been the one with the, he was one with the stammer, the one who was bullied, the quiet, meek guy. God uses him to lead the nation of Israel, including seeing whole seas parted. Why? Is God cruel? No, he wants him to stay dependent. With Abraham, he calls a guy who's not in the prime of his life, but he's right near the end of his life. And his wife, who physically could never have babies, and he says, yeah, you're going to have so many babies, ultimately the whole world's going to be blessed. 
Do you think he would have felt dependent on God for that promise to be fulfilled? You bet your life. King David, the youngest brother, would have felt way out of his depth. You see it like a heartbeat all the time. What's God saying? I want to warn you against an autopilot attitude. With our minds, how we view the Christian life. Do we see it as something that is achievable? Is our life just kind of happening? Do weeks just fly by? And we're not actually consciously thinking, Lord, Lord, I can't even live this day unless you sustain me. And I'll give you a couple of examples. You think about knowing the will of God. I talk to people at times and I'll say, do you, know, do you know what you want to do with your life? And often the language is effectively kind of like, well, I want to do this thing. And effectively it feels like they're saying, I want to do this and hopefully God will bless me. And actually what you see in the scripture is this incredible, this incredible reversal of that. That if you're a Christian, it means that your life no longer is your own. And this is the deal. I don't think the Bible says to know the will of God for your life is an easy thing at all. I don't think it says that. Romans 12 says this. Don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by your thinking. Why? So that you may be able to test and approve, and by testing, discern the will of God. So if your mind is not conformed, but transformed, I radically changed then by testing, whatever that means, you may discern the will of God. Think about that. Is that, is that implying that you're just going to automatically always know what the will of God is for your life? I mean, we know the general will of God through Scripture, but God has this particular moment-by-moment will for you if you're a Christian and you follow Christ. And I find this a very sobering reality that I can't just presume upon knowing the will of God for my life. I want to say, Lord, humbly, I need to know, Lord, am I doing the right things? Lord, speak to me. There's a wrestling. Romans 12 tells us it's not just an easy thing. And then even when you know it, doing the will of God. Do you think doing the will of God is an easy thing? No. If we're in autopilot mode, we, we're in trouble. We have to be those that fight against that. You might say, Tom, Tom, listen, I've just got a very normal job. It's just to pay the bills. I can do that in autopilot. Sure. No, actually, the Bible says to do all things for the glory of God. All things. That means every area of our lives as Christians is meant to be humbly glorifying God. Is that something we can achieve an autopilot? I don't think so. I think it requires a tenacious, almost aggressive, holy sense of, Lord, search my heart, help me to live this one day in a way that glorifies you. Jesus in John 4 says, the, father, the son can do nothing except what he sees the father doing. Parents, I've just felt this recently. I've got Daisy, Lily and Poppy. And I was praying and I suddenly realized I can't make them love Jesus. And that's obvious, isn't it? But I can't make them do that. And God was reminding me so that I would feel that sense of dependence on God. I wouldn't just think, well, if I get the Bible out every so often and I talk about Jesus, then they'll automatically do it. No, no. God alone. God alone. And God wants us to be living in a place of ongoing understanding of this. You might even be here and not a Christian and just be looking in on this whole thing. And the amazing thing is the Bible tells us that actually you can't even become a Christian without his help. Is that you, of course, are involved in using your mind and thinking it through. But ultimately, even it's God himself who gives you that sense of need for him. He's been prior at work on your heart, even before you got here today, giving you an appetite to think these things through. Giving you an appetite. You might be newly married we're about to get married. Hey, listen, don't allow an autopilot attitude to slip in. 
Don't allow that. Know and feel that sense of, Lord, I know that if that creeps in, I'm in trouble. I think about some of the things we're facing together. I think about the amazingly exciting launch of the Whitstable congregation. The site, that location, I think, is that just going to happen? Are we going to see thousands of people affected with the gospel of Jesus? No. And if we go into it, meditate, or, or rather resting on our planning or our media or our or flashy lights or whatever, rather than in a conscious dependence on God, we are in big trouble. Or the building that God seems to be opening up for us to go for, that will require us fighting an autopilot attitude. Oh, it will happen. God's sovereign. It will happen. Well, he is sovereign. But do you know what? He calls us to be on red alert. Stay awake is one of the big themes that Christ is constantly saying to his followers. Stay awake. Unity. Virtually half the New Testament is written about churches that are disunified. You think unity will just stay as it is? Well, we have to stay awake. Have to stay awake. So the Bible tells us this, but it's so anti, in some ways, our natural thinking because the, the, the world's way of living this life is when you get to 16 or 18, you then leave home and you become independent. And the Christian life is actually about ever increasingly understanding your dependence. It's totally and utter different to the world. Andrew Murray says the Christian often tries to forget his weakness. God wants us to remember it and to feel it deeply. It's not comfortable. I'm not saying that, but this whole series is going to be uncomfortable. But Jesus is saying, yeah, you're not able. And actually, you never were. And you probably started to think, oh, disciples, that you are able. You're living off the fumes from the past. You're living off the things that have gone on before. And interestingly, this Neil Anderson says, the essence of temptation is the invitation to live independently of God. That's what Satan said in the garden originally. He said, did he really say that? Did he really say that? Trying to get Adam and Eve to live independently. Bruce Wilkinson says, dependence upon God makes heroes of ordinary people like you and me. So let me just start by saying this, is that are we in a place of, being aware of an autopilot attitude. And it's not actually that this is something that is like, a, you know, God hitting us over the stick with, because actually living in dependence with God, living consciously in the awareness of our dependence on him is the true place for joy. It's the true place for actual joy like no other. If we are secretly in our hearts, like I think these disciples were slipping into this at all, it's not just that it's not right, it ultimately doesn't even lead to joy. Be aware of the autopilot attitude. I remember several years ago, I had a repeated invitation from various people to um, leave Canterbury and to go and lead different churches. Um, two were in the UK, one was a different country. And it was very flattering. And, um, you know, it was like, you, know, you always get that thing of, oh, you know, grass is greener, and a bit of a novelty factor. And you think, oh, you know, I've got to make sure, make sure I think this through. And then I felt God so clearly say to me, um, yeah, but am I calling you to that? Because if you just go out and do it, I won't necessarily bless it at all. The reason God's blessing what you're doing is because you're being obedient. You are aware of your dependence on God. So we've got to start by understanding that I think that the core issue here was that they're in autopilot attitude. Can I just ask you lovingly but challengingly, how are you doing? If you know and love the Lord, have weeks just flown by and you're just doing the thing and not actually consciously saying, Lord, I really desperately need you to be living the life that you called me to. 
perhaps actually you're finding yourself, your life is so comfortable in some ways that you're not even feeling a need for that. And comfort and, and, and comfort, comfort and a life can anesthetize us to the reality that for every breath, we're dependent on the living God. And that's meant to free us and cut through the lie and the belief that we're kind of invincible, which so many of us fall into, I think. First of all, then, be aware of the autopilot attitude. Secondly, though, we see um, a call here to what I've called laser in on the lukewarm love. So the first point I was really saying was I think there's a mental or head element to this. They were mentally in their minds wrongly viewing the task that God had given them to live the Christian life in, in a way that they could just kind of pull it off. This second point really here is dealing with the heart. I think the heart is the second key element that we see here. Verse 18, sorry, 19. When the man says to Jesus, they were not able, what does he say? Does he say, ah, they got their technique wrong. They just got it all wrong. Does he say, oh, you know, they just weren't saying the right words. Those naughty disciples. No, what does he say? He says, oh, faithless generation. Oh, faithless generation. How long am I to bear with you? And then later on he talks about, Anything is possible for those who believe. There's the same two sides of the same coin. Jesus here, in a, in a haunting way, actually sees right into the heart of the issue. And the issue is the heart. It's not to do with how they're doing it on the externalities. He says, the reason that you are not able to do this apparently impossible thing in your human strength is, first of all, in your mind, you seem to be viewing it with a kind of just a sloppy, lazy, autopilot attitude. But secondly, your heart is faithless. And I want it to be faithful, almost like a, you know, like a petrol, uh, like a petrol in a car. It's either full or empty, and it's, and it's less. It's not where it should be. And it's almost the language here. And in other places, Jesus talks about being like an adulterous generation. It's this strong, confronting reality that the human heart is what God is most bothered about and he's saying here you're saying the right words you're doing the right actions but your heart is not actually focused and centered around me and I can see it it's so obvious to me is what God's saying that scares me because it's the same today he sees our hearts he doesn't just see our actions and our outwards he sees our inner hearts right now he sees it and, and the thing is, we are, as a church, strong on God's sovereignty, which means God's the king, which means we believe God is always in charge. And I totally believe that, all right? But he doesn't say at this moment, oh, you prayed, did you, to my disciples, and nothing happened? Never mind. Well done for praying. That's what I would say as a nice pastor. I'd say, well done for having a go, all right? He doesn't say that. He, he doesn't say, well, God is sovereign. So clearly God didn't want this demon to be cast out of him right now. That's what we'd say, isn't it? He says, effectively, it's your fault. He says, I've given you authority. It's not to do with God's sovereignty. It's that you are faithless, is what he says. Your heart is not in a place of deep, abiding, consistent, robust, focused trust and confidence in me as a good God who's for you and will deliver his promises. That's what he's saying. And that needs to, we need to allow that to affect us here today. And even as I'm saying this, some of you are hearing it. Some of you are just like, it's bouncing off. And I cry to you, let it affect your soul. Don't assume this is for someone else. Assume God's word is wanting to penetrate your heart for this very day. He loves these disciples. But he's, a, 
He's, he's a God who won't pander to them. And he won't pander to us. And he won't pretend that Christianity just happens. He's saying, your heart, Proverbs 4.23 says, guard your heart with all vigilance above all else. It literally means, no matter what your priorities are in heart, are you guarding your heart? Are you guarding it like, you know, bodyguards guard Whitney Houston in whatever the film was called, the body, you know, are you guarding it? Are you saying, how's my heart? How's my heart? How's my heart? You know, are you doing that? Or you just no idea what my heart's like. I go to church, I put my hands up, I go to, go to small, what do you mean? Your heart, not your actions is what he's saying. How is your heart doing? How is your heart this very day? I can't do that for you. I can be passionate and try and explain the word, but only you can take responsibility for before a holy God saying, Lord, how is my heart? Revelation 3 is haunting. Jesus talks to various churches, Laodicean church. He says, you're lukewarm. And I want to spit you out. Use that word if it helps. Lukewarm. I find that helpful when I was thinking about this. Lukewarm. Francis Chan and his... Highly challenging book. It's painful to read. Crazy Love. Deceptive title. It sounds like Crazy Love. Sounds like, oh, nice fun book. You read it and you're like, oh, I'm even a Christian. It's very, very wonderfully challenging. And he just describes lukewarm Christians. He says this, lukewarm Christians, they give money to charity and the church. As long as it doesn't impinge on their standard of living. If they have little change, it's easy and safe to give. They do so. After all, God lives a che- loves a cheerful giver, right? Lukewarm people tend to choose what is popular over what is right when they are in conflict. They desire to fit in both at church and outside of church. They care more about what people think of their actions than what God thinks of their hearts. Lukewarm people don't really want to be saved from their sin. They want to only be saved from the penalty of their sin. I.e. they don't genuinely hate sin. They aren't really sorry for it. They just are sorry because God's going to punish them. Lukewarm people don't really believe that this new life Jesus offers is better than the old sinful one. Lukewarm people are moved by stories about people who do radical things for Jesus, yet they do not act. They assume such action is for extreme Christians, not average ones. Lukewarm people call radical what Jesus expected of all his followers. Lukewarm people rarely share their faith with their neighbours, co-workers or friends. They don't want to be rejected, nor do they want to make people feel uncomfortable by talking about private issues like religion. Lukewarm people gauge their morality or goodness by comparing themselves to the secular world. They feel satisfied that whilst they aren't as hardcore for Jesus as some, they are nowhere near as nasty as the guy down the street. And lukewarm people say they love Jesus, and he is indeed part of their lives, but only a part. They give him a section of their time and their money and their thoughts, but he isn't allowed to control their lives. I find that hugely challenging. I'm preaching this to myself. I know you know that, but just say that. Charles Spurgeon says this. He says, I don't think the the devil cares how many churches that we build as long as they have lukewarm preachers with lukewarm people. He's right. We could have thousands in this church, thousands of churches across the UK. But if we are lukewarm, what this tells us, we will be ineffective. It's not about technique. It's not about... Getting the words right, it's about the secret inner place of the heart. And only you and your God can know that. And what Jesus isn't saying, he thinks, oh, we all go through lukewarm periods sometimes. He says, you've got to get a warrant, friend. It's not meant to be there. 
He doesn't let us off the hook and go, hey, chill out, Tom. Goodness sake. He is zealous for your soul. He he yearns to have your full affections and your full trust. He yearns for it like a father yearns for his children who are wayward and are just giving him this, but they're not actually in their hearts trusting him. And God this year, I believe, wants to, he wants to help us. Hard words produce soft hearts, says Mark Driscoll. Soft words produce hard hearts. God's words are hard because they need to be hard to smash through our hard hearts and keep them soft. Soft words, if everything's fine, produce a autopilot attitude, people, produce a lukewarm heart attitude, people. How is your heart today? How is it? Is it, is it, is it, is it growing in its passion for God? in its faithfulness, in its passions for him? Is your appetite for him increasingly your main appetite in life? Or is it other stuff? Because what will happen is what we've just read about today is that we'll enter into things, we'll approach things that are impossible and think we'll just blag it and actually we'll have a rude awakening again and again. That's the reality for us. There is no kind of middle nice path It's a radical path. It's a narrow path is what Jesus says to follow me. Wide is the path that is to destruction. Narrow is the path I call you to follow on. He's using metaphors to tell us it isn't easy. It isn't easy. I won't lie to you. But it's radically important. So you're probably sitting there thinking, okay, I feel some level of desire to not have an autopilot attitude in my mind and to have a heart that isn't lukewarm. I hope if not all of us are feeling that. So I want to finish by just saying, how? What's, is there any hope? Because see, Jesus could have at this point says, I am absolutely fed up with you lot. I'm, I'm just, just go. I'm not going to. He doesn't say that. I love this. And when he'd entered the house, so he takes, these guys are feeling like idiots, all right? They've failed. The whole town's come and they have failed. And Jesus lovingly then takes into verse 29, into his house. His disciples ask him privately, why couldn't we cast it out? And he says, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Now, I wish I had some funky, groovy, innovative final point. But it's just what it says. It's prayer. It's prayer. You're hearing about prayer at church. (laughs) Prayer. How do we avoid a mind that goes into, I can just achieve this, autopilot? How do we... Go to war on our souls and our hearts that are just lukewarm and faithless and therefore lacking in power to do the impossible. There is one answer that Jesus gives here and we cannot dodge it. It is prayer. And he's not saying you should have prayed more in the moment. He's kind of saying by that point it's kind of too late. He's saying you went into this situation and your hearts were faithless because you haven't got an ongoing life of robust prayer. That's what he's saying. Put it in this way, he's saying for you, O oh disciples, prayer has become the spare wheel that you get out when your car breaks down. Oh no, something's gone wrong. Quick, prayer, let's do that. He's saying, no, it won't work. I mean, God in his grace, of course, answers those prayers. But in this situation, this context, he's saying it can't be the spare wheel. It has to be the steering wheel. 
It has to be the thing that is focused, the central aspect of your walk with God when things are good as well as when things are not good and they're challenging. That's what he's saying here. It's this that leads to it because prayer, asking God, actually changes stuff, which I know sounds obvious, but it actually works amazingly. And it changes stuff externally, I out there. Oh Lord, whatever it is, I pray that my friend might come to know Christ. I pray that my family member might be healed. I pray that whatever. It pray, prayer changes external stuff, but this is what he's saying. It changes internal stuff. That's the point. He's saying your prayer life is directly related to your inner faith, your inner passion, your inner confidence in me. And Jesus can just, like a perfect doctor, diagnose it. This is the issue, my friends, and this is the solution. There isn't another one. This is it. You've got to take responsibility. It's prayer. It's prayer. So, so prayer is something that, I don't know if you're like me, it's something I constantly know I struggle with. And yet we see again and again through church history, I don't know if there's a single other activity that is most lifted up as the consistent reason for God doing great things. I think it's probably the number one thing. John Wesley says, God does nothing except in response to believing prayer. S.D. Gordon says, the greatest thing anyone can do for God or man is to pray. Chuck Smith said, the most important thing a born-again Christian can do is prayer. Is pray. Prayer is where the action is, to quote John Wesley. It's just this massively, massively significant thing that we see throughout church history. So why don't we do it, Tom, we ask. Why don't we do it more? And if you're someone who prays all the time, God bless you. But for most of us, we, we look at this, we go, oh, this is so true, but how do I do it? Give me, help me, Tom. And there's two reasons why we don't pray that I think. And there's lots more, but there's two that we'll just think about for a moment today and then we'll finish. The first of them is busyness and the second of them is ignorance. All right, what do I mean by that? The first of them is sheer busyness. Now, you might think, busyness? That's not a very spiritual answer, Tom. I, th- I think it's probably virtually the number one reason that most of us don't pray. The sheer intense pace of 21st li- century living is one of the biggest enemies to your soul being nourished in prayer and therefore you being faithful and therefore able to do the things of God. You trace the, trace the pattern here. And you might say, is it really that unusual, the days in which we live? Oh my goodness. If you were to look back over the last few hundred years, we have to understand the extraordinary days we're living in right now. Do you know, sociologists tell us that on average, the average human now in the Western world is exposed to 5,000 different media messages every single day. That's text messages, that's phones, that's the internet, that's the news, that's magazines. It is overwhelming. It's called, a technical name for it is called clutter. It's, this, it's probably the biggest enemy of your development in God. It's just clutter is information overload. And we don't even know it's unusual. And yet we live in this extraordinary slither of time in history compared with the ages that have gone past where we are being bombarded, bombarded, bombarded. And the enemy loves it. And we don't even know it. You know, apparently, if someone reads a paper every day for seven days, they will have consumed more information than the average person would have done in their entire life a hundred years ago. That's how much information now we are currently being bombarded with. In America, the average American watches between five and eight hours of TV every day. In the UK, it's somewhere between four and six. That has an effect in terms of God's and our relationship with God and our ability to communicate with him. Do you know there was even a report recently, it's funny and terrible at the same time, of a guy who was getting married and he was at the altar and suddenly, suddenly noticed 
he had one of those hands-free phone sets. He's at the altar waiting for his bride to come. And when questioned about it, he said, well, I did have a pretty important call that could well have come. And I was just wanting to make use of the time because, you know, it's really important. That's sick. I mean, that's just weird, isn't it? This, we are in an age that is addicted to information. You are. So many of you in this room, you're like that. And uh, do you know what? So am I at times. That sounds silly, but as practical as it is, turning your phone off for serious chunks of time, turning your, your, your computer off, it does something to your soul. It does something to your soul. It does. It just allows you to start to slow your soul down and to start to allow God to be heard once again. In Matthew 6, Jesus says, when you pray, he says, go into your room and shut the door. And we can go, what does he mean? What is, what is the deep meaning of this? What, what he means is, go into your room and shut the door. He means as in, don't, have, don't be just like, well, I pray when I walk. That's fine. That's good. Do you have praying in your room on your own with the door shut prayer as well? Because if you just pray all the time, as some people say, and as holy as that is and great, and I'm not just dissing constant communion with God, Jesus says you must, you must have significant chunks of time alone with your, with your God where you are shutting the door and making sure nothing gets before you, between you and God. I love Rick Warren, who leads a big church in America. He's brilliant. He basically he nails the point that for most Christians, we think the Christian life is about knowing stuff. Knowing stuff. Understanding. And yet he says this. He says, Matthew 28 doesn't say, go and make, dis- go and make disciples, baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to know and understand stuff. He says, teaching them to obey. It's about obedience. It's about actually doing it. And most of you here will be thinking, yeah, you're right, Tom. And I'm asking you, what are you going to do as of this day? How is your week going to look different this week? Because the point is not knowing it. In some ways, I think we do a disservice from, from preaching every week. I sometimes think, we know enough. Let's just go and do it. Let's actually obey. Teaching them to obey. John 13, Jesus says, if you know these things, you'll be blessed if you really understand them properly. No, if you obey them. Luke 10, go and do likewise. Matthew 7, anyone who hears these words and does not go and do them is like a man who builds his house upon the sand. Matthew 12, whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother, sister, or mother. Matthew 7, not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father in heaven. John 14, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. Luke 11, blessed are those who hear the word of God and obey it. It's about doing it. I know it's obvious, but we have to hear that. And for most of us, when we start praying, we often at times feel about as spiritual as a bag of cement, and we feel like this is absolutely, I'm just, oh, what's happening? This is rubbish. And you just, D.A. Carson says, pray until you pray. We often start in the flesh, we start in just sheer determination, and then something happens, and you know that suddenly you're starting to connect with the Holy God, and you know there's something shifting. A guy called Bilheimer says this, Satan does not care about how many people read about prayer, if only he can keep them from praying. The man who's done the most for God in this world has been early on their knees. He who fritters away the early morning, its opportunity and freshness in other pursuits rather than seeking God, will make poor headway seeking him the rest of the day. So we just got to do it, to quote Nike. Got to do it. I love Corrie Ten Boom. She says this, um, don't pray when you feel like it. 
She says, have an appointment with the Lord and keep to it. I love that. She's just like really real about it. Don't just be like, I'll pray when I feel right. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with that. But have a life where you are actually putting in place regularly, daily time with your God. So first of all, then, I think busyness. But I think secondly, and with this we'll finish, ignorance. But I think there's a couple of aspects. I think we're ignorant of the power of prayer. Most, most of us, excuse me. And I think we're also ignorant to whom it is that we're praying. I think we're ignorant, most of us, to the power that the Bible tells us as to prayer. I mean, in this passage alone, Jesus clearly links prayer, ongoing prayer, with a heart that is full of faith and able, therefore, to do amazing, impossible things. But I think often we can have a, and I think I've, I've sometimes fallen into the trap of only thinking of prayer, perhaps in terms of just kind of being with God. And that's a good thing. It's good to be with God. But Terry Virgo makes the, the big point that he believes the emphasis in the New Testament is not just prayer in terms of being with God. It is asking God for things. Again and again and again. It is ask and you shall receive. Seek and you shall find. Knock and the door will be open to you. Again, Jesus says, you do not have because you do not ask. It's like the promises of God are there waiting for us to ask God and then he'll bring them into existence and into reality. John 15 says this, you, Jesus said, you did not pick me, but I chose you to go and bear much fruit, fruit that will last, so that whatever you ask in my Father's name, he will give you. So Terry Virgo famously says, that one verse alone tells me this. This is my identity as a Christian. Are you ready for this? I am a hand picked asker. I've been picked by God and my job is to ask him. You did not choose me, I chose you so that you bear much fruit so that you can ask. Whatever you ask in heaven, he will give you. That's our identity. We are those that ask God because there is enormous, incredible power available when we ask God to do the things that he's promised to do. He doesn't do things that he hasn't promised to do. But when we say to him, God, you said, you told us through this, or you said it through a prophetic word, Lord, I believe you. There is something incredibly beautiful and sweet and precious and powerful when we do that. John, sorry, um, uh, Paul rather, the great apostle Paul, he says he experienced something called the third heaven, which sounds phenomenally bizarre and amazing to me. Something, some other experience that probably most of us have never had. It says also that the way he became a Christian was by the risen Lord himself appearing to him and knocking him off a horse. So you could say his spiritual credentials were fairly impressive. And yet what is one of the greatest themes when he writes letters to the churches that he's with? Pray for me. Pray for me. Pray for me. Pray for me. He says it like a heartbeat. He uses language like strive together with me. Labor with me in your prayer. He's saying it's not easy, but you must give yourself to it. You actually have to do it, is what he's saying. It's not enough to want to do it or no, you should do it. You have to actually make the decision to do it. And the enemy will try and wage war. Your flesh, the world, everything will try and work against us, seeing this as something that we move forward in. Satan trembles when he sees the, weak, the weakest Christian on his knees, says William Cooper. And Samuel Chadwick says this, the only concern of the devil is to keep Christians from praying. He fears nothing from prayerless studies, nothing from prayerless work, nothing from prayerless religion. He laughs at our toil, he mocks our wisdom, but he trembles when we pray. I think he's absolutely right. And that's why Charles Spurgeon said, I would rather teach one man to pray than 10 men to preach. And if you know Charles Spurgeon, he was probably one of the greatest preachers that ever lived. He said that. He understood 
that this isn't just one of those things that you just hear and go, yeah, file away, prayer. If you make the decision as, as of this day to not just make this another sermon, but you actually say, I don't care about people around me. I'm going to take this to heart. I'm going to actually change my week. Charles Spurgeon, as well as the Bible, promises that it is the wisest decision that you can conceivably make with your life. Why don't we just make that decision today in our hearts? Why don't we just say, Lord, even now, help me to show my life. How can it structurally be different so that I'm going to honour the principle? I'm not just going to file it away. I'm going to do something in my small group, in my marriage, with my mates. We're going to become a people. I, I want that for us, you know? When we meet God today, well, one day, it might be today, but when we meet God as one of your pastors, my dream is that you go, do you know, there was this day back in uh, 2012, and if I'm honest, I had this sermon about prayer and I was just, I don't know, I just, I struggled with prayer and it was something I occasionally did. And But something lodged. And bit by bit, baby step by baby step, I, I learned how to pray. I, I discovered that actually I'm, I, I tend to pray better outdoors. You know, I find that easier. Or I pray when I'm walking. Or I find it easier to pray when I'm with other people. Because we're all different. The actual practicalities of how you find it easier to pray are totally secondary. But the principles remain. The principles are incredibly important for us. Or else, do you know what? When we hurtle into this year, a church, we will be like the nine. As a church, we will be all this, all the flashy websites, all the woohoo, here we go, and no power. And that scares me. I don't want people to come in here going, this is a big, this is a big deal for me. I've come into this church. I believe that the message you're telling me that there's going to be life change here. And he meets us. And we just, we're, we, there's no power. God wants every single Christian to have a deep, abiding prayer life, which means their faith levels are high, which means that means they're not in uh, autopilot mindset, but they're actually in a place of faith that if we pray for your situation, my friend, we will see change. That's what God wants. He doesn't just want it to be a few keenies. He wants the whole church equipped in faith. Yes, we can move mountains. We can see millions of pounds coming for a building project. We can see those people who have never even thought Christ was the most irrelevant person in their lives come and know the living God. We can see that happen. And if we partner with God, if we ask him, he'll do it. God's passion is for you. He doesn't want you to be lukewarm if you're here thinking, I'm a bit lukewarm. He wants today you to say, take away this very complicated thing. Learn to pray. (laughs) Give yourself to prayer. And the final thing that stops us from praying is this, is we can be ignorant at times or at least forget who it is we're praying to. You see, in the final bit of the passage we've read, Jesus says this, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. And what's fascinating is in all the other accounts, In the Gospel of Mark, where Jesus predicts his death. Don't miss this. This is amazing. He just says, I'm going to die. But here he uses this particular phrase, the Son of Man will be delivered. You you deliver a letter, don't you? You deliver a parcel. Who's going to deliver him? One level, it'll be Judas who betrays him. The Jewish leaders will deliver him up, ultimately to be killed. But the implication of this is incredibly profound. Who will ultimately deliver Jesus Christ to be killed? For your sin and my sin. His father. His father. Think about that. He's saying, me and my father, we've we've got together, we've got this this idea. We're going to rescue planet Earth. And so he's going to actually, he's going to deliver me up to be killed. 
to hang on a cross for Tom Shaw's sin and for your sin. Why? Because my father yearns to have a restored relationship with wicked, sinful humans who all they think about is themselves. And it's going to cost everything. Uh, if you're a parent, maybe you've got a particular privilege of being able to emotionally connect with the idea of delivering up your child to be killed. I can't even conceive of it. I cannot conceive of the love of the Father for me that he would deliver up his son to die for me. Why? So I could pray to him. So I could have a communication with God. It wasn't a cheap thing for you to be able to pray to God. It is unimaginably expensive. For us to not to pray, man, it's, it's, it's not only unwise, it's not only leads to lack of power, it breaks the heart of God. Feel that word, he, deliver, he will be delivered up. The Father has come to rescue you. It is not just a God who's powerful, he is your Father. And that's why when we pray, we pray to the Father who didn't just say, I love you in a, in a general way. He said, I will love you enough to give you my precious boy. I didn't have a big family. I've got one son. I'm going to give him to die for you. So that you could one day be in East Kent and you could talk to me. And I wouldn't pour up my wrath. I'd love you and I'd listen. And I'd silence heaven and go, Shh, let, me, let me listen. My, my, my new one, my, my daughter. Yeah, she didn't used to love me. She loves me. She's talking. What's she saying? Wow. Yeah, I'll do that. That's an eye with my, I'll give you that. Well done for asking. Because as you ask, we get closer, right? As you ask, you come to know that I'm real. Well done for silencing the busyness of life. Well done for believing. Well done for asking. You didn't presume. You weren't just cocky and arrogant and presumptuous. You asked. And I love that. Prayer, the, maybe the biggest secret with prayer is knowing who you're praying to. It's the gospel. You see, this has been a challenging message. <laughs> and, and some of it has been about doing stuff. And the danger when you talk about doing stuff is you think, oh, I've just got to do stuff. It's in the context of grace. It's in the context of God first loving you. Of God the Father delivering up his son. So that you could have a free grace relationship with God. But it's not to then have a sloppy life this side of eternity where we don't tend to our soul through prayer. No, no, it's so that we are all the more zealous in light of his grace. I don't just go, oh yeah, thanks for giving your son so I could pray to you. I won't bother doing it much because ha, big brother's on. You know, I've got Facebook. <laughs> Friends, God is lovingly sounding out to us. We are not living in peacetime. We are living in an invisible war. And if you love Christ, there is a good fight that Christ is calling us to. A fight through prayer for your soul. Not that if you don't pray, you lose your salvation. I'm not saying that. I am saying that if you want to grow and mature and not stay an infant in Christ, but grow into a mature man, a mature woman for God. And together as a church, we can grow over these coming years together. What an adventure. I want that for us. I want that with all my heart. I love our Sundays. Growing all the time, over 600. It's fantastic. It's exciting. But you know what? I want to see our prayer meetings go beyond that. I want to see our prayer life grow and mature, not just because it sounds good, but because actually what this passage is telling us 
is that we need a reality check. That unless we are obedient and put into practice the principle we've all heard before, I know, unless we actually do it, then what Jesus' word says to us is that we will lack the power that we need to change East Kent forever. He wants to be with us. He wants to help us, but we have to ask. So let's do that now, shall we? Let's even now. Just, you might just want to bow your head. You might just want to just be before him. Just allow yourself, just in these last moments, just to do business with God, okay? You don't need a priest. You, If you know Jesus says that we are now all priests before him, you can come straight into his presence. You are in his presence. And you might just want to quietly in your soul say, Lord, Thank you that your word doesn't patronize me. Thank you your word is sometimes like a hammer. That's what Jeremiah says about the word of God. And I pray, God, that as we hear in your presence, before we go into a busy time, Lord, I look across this room and I think, wow. Wow. The potential is unbelievable. Lord, I love to hear the stories almost every week now of miracles and healings. And people who never wanted to hear about Christ asking about God and this church. That's a miracle. That's not us. That's you. I, I want to pray for anyone here today who has been in autopilot attitude in their mind and their thinking. I just want to pray that you will gently right now lead them to repent and to turn their thinking. That's what repentance means, a change of thinking. To In your mind, just say, God, save me from that foolish way. Let me not be like a man who builds my house on the sand, which is someone who hears the word of God but doesn't do it. And I pray for hearts here. If there are any hearts that are lukewarm, and some of you, even as I'm saying that, you know your heart's lukewarm and you don't even care. I pray, God, help them to care first. Help them to tell the person who perhaps mentors them, disciples them, or their small group leader. I pray, God, that we will be a Proverbs 4.23 people who guard our hearts like an army soldier. You know, in the First World War, if a sentry on duty went off, slept, went to sleep on duty, he was court-martialed, he was killed. God wants us to be absolutely vigilant. Lord, I pray it. You'll help us by your spirit to guard our hearts. And I pray that we will be a people who delight in prayer. Who, who will look back on maybe these days and go, I can't believe in many ways how little I did it. This unbelievable gift bought by the cross. This most powerful of weapon. I pray for fathers who find it hard to lead at home. I pray for mothers who find it hard to pour their lives into their children. I pray for everyone in this room. God, don't let us stay still. Make us be disciples, which means changes, transformed by God daily. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.